Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. We are so excited to see you and to have you be with us. If you brought your Bibles with you, and I hope that you have, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark and to chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We are going to continue in our study of this series of of sermons that we have been looking at now for uh, the last month uh, entitled Follow Me. And uh, in, the, in this series of sermons, we're looking at the passages in the, in the Gospels in which Jesus utters those words, follow me. And we are examining them in their context and, and then taking them and, and then applying what we learn there to our lives. And so far in this series of sermons, we, we have determined that the call to follow Jesus is a call to respond in faith and in repentance uh, of, us, of our sins and to follow him obediently, surrendering everything to his lordship. And that's really what the whole call to follow me is. Every time Jesus issues it, that, that is at the essence of, of that call. And since that's true, then we've also determined that repentance and obedience is that issues forth in our lives then necessitates that we, we commit our complete selves to him. And it necessitates also that his kingdom become the top priority in our lives. And as such, we recognize that no one or, or no thing can take his place as the ruler in our lives. No other agenda can top the agenda that Jesus Christ gives us when he calls us to come and to follow him. Now, if that's true... If those demands that he places upon us because we are following Jesus, uh, if, if, those, if those things are true, then as we learned this last week, we learned that to follow Jesus, we've got to be willing to give ourselves up to God and to even die for him if necessary. Uh, we've got to give, give up a life that is centered around this world and this world's priorities. But whenever we do that, we do so assured that all the temporal things that we lose will be replaced by the infinitely greater and eternal rewards of heaven and, and quite frankly, with the joy of forever being with our Savior. That's what we looked at just this last Sunday. So if you are with us for the first time today, that kind of catches you up a little bit as to the journey that we have been on together. And I believe you'll see that all of those concepts actually come back into focus again today in the text that we're going to read and look at. And by the way, if you've missed any of those sermons and you want to check those out or look at them and get caught back up, I believe that they have all been uploaded to our church website, so you're welcome to go there and and, and view those. But in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, we come to another one of those passages in which Jesus utters those words, follow me. And and quite frankly, it's one of the more well-known passages in the New Testament. Uh, It's a story of Jesus' encounter with a man that we come to know as being the rich young ruler. Um, Now, we'll read that Mark really just talks about his riches. He just talks about him being a rich man. It's it's actually from Matthew that we we learn that that he was young, and it is from Luke's gospel that we learn that he was a ruler. Uh, So it's the composite view of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that we learn that this man was a rich young ruler, but nevertheless, what I want us to do today is just read Mark's version of it, beginning in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Now as he, that is Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for this day. I thank you for these who have gathered in this place this morning to be able to open our Bibles and to hear God's word read and then be able to, to study it and chew on it and contemplate it. And I pray that as we engage in that activity this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak to us just as we have just sung. Speak, O oh Lord, into our lives through your word. Bring conviction Convince us of truth. Bind our hearts to that truth. And then change us by the power of that gospel working in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as I contemplated the, the text this week, I was just having a conversation earlier about my daughters. And uh, I was thinking about my daughters this week, contemplating this text, thinking... You know, the guy here that we read about in Mark chapter 10, that's kind of the guy I would like to see come and meet my daughters at some point along the way. I mean, aside from the fact that he's described as, as being a rich man and, and, and that he's described from, from being young and powerful, those things, but, but consider this. Uh, he would have been an achiever. He would have been, he would have been someone whose star was on the rise. He would have been someone who uh, was a ladder climber who had already achieved a lot by a young age. He was a devout man. He was a respectful man. He was someone who lived a very disciplined life. Um, from what we learn of him, he would be the type of man that you would probably not have a lot of worries about. Um, he'd probably make a great grandfather. Or he'd make a great father to your grandchildren. He'd probably be your first choice to take over the family business. There's a lot to admire about this man. But, but as I was thinking through this and going, you know, I really want to pull for him. What I began to realize was is that this man is not the central figure in this passage. And the reason that we know that is because... All of the arrows of this text, and I mean the movement, physical movement arrows of this text, as well as the emotional arrows of this text, all point to Jesus or away from Jesus. Jesus is the central figure in this text. And what I want you to note 
is that it's the rich young ruler who approaches him. It's the rich young ruler who wants to know from him the answer to the greatest question that could ever be asked. And it's also the rich young ruler who walks away from Jesus in sorrow. And therefore, Jesus is the one toward whom, to whom, and from whom all of the action and all of the dialogue centers. Since that's the case, you and I have got to realize that just as Jesus challenged and confronted this rich young ruler, so will he confront and challenge you and me. The question is, are we going to respond as the rich young ruler did, or will we respond in repentance and obedience? In my outline today, I've just kind of provided you with some hooks for us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this passage. And the first hook that I've given you just draws simple attention to this. What did the rich young ruler get right? What he got right? And I want you to notice that from Mark's description of the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus eagerly, he came willingly. Mark says he came running. Not only that, but he also came respectfully. He knelt down before Jesus. And furthermore, when he spoke, he did so with the intent of showing respect. He called Jesus good teacher or good rabbi. And so what we can say about this man just right up front is that He came to the right source, he came in the right way, and he displayed the right attitude. But he also had the right subject on his mind. And by right, what I mean is that he had the weightiest and most important subject that anyone could ever have on his mind. He wanted to know how he could inherit eternal life. Now listen, I want you to know there is no greater question than that. There is no weightier, more significant question than that one. In the scriptures, Jesus tells us that he came that he might bring us life and that he might bring abundant life full of joy and full of peace and fulfillment. Furthermore, the scriptures characterize that life not as being temporary, but being eternal, lasting forever and ever and ever. It's a life lived in the presence of God, a life lived glorifying and enjoying God for all of eternity. And I want you to know there's not a more important question that any of us can seek to have answered in our lives rather than how can we have that life. Furthermore, when we consider that the opposite of eternal life is eternal death, an eternity spent experiencing the untold agony and misery of being separated from the one and only true source of life, an eternity spent bearing the full weight of your own sins without the possibility of pardon or parole, in a place called hell, a place which was prepared by God for for Satan and his demons, a place where the Bible says the worm does not die and the flame is not quenched. Well, if we consider that, then we realize once again just how absolutely important this question is that this man has on his mind. He wants to know, how can I avoid eternal death? How can I receive and inherit eternal life? And it was such a weighty question upon him that he ran to Jesus and threw himself down before Jesus to ask him that question. And that brings me to the next hook that I provided for you on your outline. You see, he got some things right, but the man got some things wrong too. What did he get wrong? Well, in the first place, though he calls Jesus good teacher, it becomes obvious that the rich young ruler misunderstood exactly who Jesus was. 
notice that Jesus responds to the young man this way. He says, why do you call me good? There's only one good. That's God. Jesus reminds this man that God alone is the source of essential goodness. Now, we must not let Jesus' answer here confuse us. Um, By what he says to the man, Jesus is neither disavowing his divinity, nor is he stating that he is not good. Rather, what Jesus is doing is he's exposing the fact that the rich young ruler didn't truly understand to whom he was asking his question. So without going into greater detail, understand that Jesus is not disavowing his goodness. He's just simply pointing this man to the fact that he had a misunderstanding of who he was talking to. That's the first thing the man got wrong. But notice also by the way that the man phrased his question, we recognize that his concept of salvation was wrong. And that really alerts us to the fact that he didn't know who he was asking the question of is the, is the question that he asked. He believed that gaining eternal life would be accomplished by his own efforts and by his own achievements rather than by God's grace. Notice his question. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He's got a bad subject of that, sentence, of that question, and he's got a bad verb. What shall I do? Now, in this case, Jesus doesn't immediately correct the man. Instead, in verse 19, Jesus tells him, well, you know the commandments. You know what to do. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Incidentally, if these commandments sound familiar, they should because they are the final six commandments that were given in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And these final six commandments are the ones that govern our relationships with one another. Every, if you look at them, every single one of them has to deal with horizontal relationships, how we are to respond and act and interact with one another. Notice how the rich young ruler responds to Jesus. He says, teacher... All these things I have kept from my youth. Now, I believe that this this young man believed that what he told the Lord was correct. In his heart, I believe with integrity, he thought that he had kept all of these things. In his mind, he was not a lawbreaker. In his mind, he had never broken any of the commandments. Nevertheless, based upon what we know that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 11, we know that the rich young ruler was deceived because with regard to full obedience to the law, Jesus didn't just stop with one's external actions. He went all the way down to what the heart would say. And he, as the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So he gets down to the the rudimentary things that are going on, the motivations, the thought processes, And he doesn't even just deal simply with the externals. He gets down to the internals. And so he's looking all the way down to the the, the root of a person. Even so, this, this this young man believed that by his own assessment, he had been diligent to do what the law had commanded and that he had been diligent to not do what the law prohibited. And honestly, you know, I think that's how a lot of people evaluate themselves today. You see, from from... For many, they understand religion as an external set of of do's and don'ts, um, rules that have to be kept. And to many, the the ability to keep those rules is what determines their worth and their value to God. 
In other words, if they've got like a list of things that they can check off that they've done, all of which are good things, that's, that's how God's going to evaluate them and that's how they evaluate themselves. But if they ever do something wrong, which of course we are all human, right? So we're all going to do some things wrong. What we hope is, is that the things that we check that we've done wrong are fewer than the things that we check that we've done right. So that at the end of our lives, God will look at those two sets of balances and says the things that you check that you did right outweigh or outnumber the things that you check that you did wrong. And so because that's the case, then yeah, you are a better person than you were a bad person. Come on in, I'll let you into heaven. Tragically, there are many, those both outside the walls of the church, but brothers and sisters, those inside the walls of the church who have deceived themselves and are deceiving themselves into believing that that's really how the whole eternal life thing works. In many ways, that is what I believe is behind the original question that the rich young ruler asked Jesus. It betrays his flawed understanding of the gospel of grace. The man wanted to know, what shall I do? that I may inherit eternal life. His whole framework of eternal life was built upon what achievements he could accomplish. And he failed to comprehend that which the Apostle Paul would later write about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when he tells us that we are saved by grace through faith and that even that faith is not of ourselves but is a gift of God. It is not of works, which therefore prevents any of us from ever standing before God and boasting in ourselves. So this rich young ruler misunderstood and got a number of things wrong. But thankfully, Jesus is about to correct all of it. Jesus is about to answer this man's question, and in doing so, he is going to point him to his only hope for attaining that for which he desperately sought, eternal life. So let me read verse 21 for you again. Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, you'll immediately note the similarity between this passage and the passage we looked at last week from Matthew chapter 16. Um, there, Jesus told his disciples that if any person would come and be his disciple, such a one must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. And while the oldest manuscripts that we have here um, in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, do not have the phrase, take up the cross, in other words, it was very likely added by a later copyist, uh, the intent of what Jesus says here to this rich young ruler is the same. It's this, it's what I mean is that this rich young ruler, for him to do what Jesus tells him to do would necessitate that he, he deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. In fact, what I want you to note are the imperatives that occur in the verse that Jesus, in the command that Jesus gives him. He tells the man to go and to sell and to give and to come and to follow. Go, sell, give, Come, follow. Five things. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute. Didn't you just make a, an explicit statement that you can't earn eternal life by doing things? 
And yet Jesus gives the man five things to do. But before you get there, understand this. Jesus pointed one thing out that the man lacked. There was one thing that was the most important thing in the man's life that these five things pointed to. That's what we got to figure out. What is that? Jesus says one thing you lack, and he, in doing so, he kind of takes his finger and he puts it on the most sensitive spot in the man's life. So yesterday, Charlie and I were throwing, throwing the baseball together, and, 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 and he's eight, and every crow thinks theirs is the blackest, but that boy's got an arm. <laughs> and, and he handcuffed me with a throw that I missed and hit me right square in my knee. And I nearly cried, but I didn't. I wanted to real bad. But an eight-year-old boy ain't got no reason to see his dad cry because he threw a ball and hit him in the knee. But last night, as I was getting ready for bed, or I got in bed, Caroline was just saying goodnight because we had been out late, and she just accidentally touched me on that knee. And I did cry. <laughs> Listen. Right here, Jesus takes his divine, godly finger and he pokes a spot in this man's life that causes him to wince and to shake. And it hurt a whole lot worse than a knee hurts when it gets touched after a baseball's hit it. Notice what happens. Jesus gives this man five things to do, all of which will require him to relinquish his hold on the thing that mattered most to him, his possessions. Jesus tells the man that he must sell the possessions that he has, take the proceeds from selling all of that, and give it away, not reinvest it into something else. Divest it into the lives of other people, the poor and the needy. Now think about it. If he sold everything he had and gave it to the poor and the needy, what did that in turn make him? Poor and needy. He would become very much like the ones that he was giving his stuff to. But there's more. He is not only to divest himself of his wealth and possessions, he is also to walk away from his position and his prestige. As I told you, Luke tells us that the man was a ruler. So he was not only wealthy, he was powerful. And Jesus says, walk away from all of that. Leave it all behind. Leave your money behind. Leave your societal position behind and come and follow me. Now, some might hear these words and think, how cruel of Jesus. How cruel of him to tell a man to give up everything of importance in his life to walk away from everything that he'd worked hard for and amassed all of his fortune and all of his security. Do not miss that key phrase that, Jesus, that Mark tells us. Jesus loved him. He looked at him and loved him. In other words, these five commands were given to this man out of love. In fact, Jesus is telling the man, look, turn loose of what's in your hands right now and you'll have treasure. Eternal treasure. Treasure waiting for you in heaven. Now, isn't that exactly what the man had come wanting to find out? The man had come to Jesus seeking that. 
He wanted to know how could he have eternal life? How could he have this, this kingdom that he could be a part of forever? A heavenly treasure. Well, in his infinite love for this man, Jesus tells him how it can be found. But what I want you to know is that the path that the man was told to take was not what he anticipated. In fact, Jesus confronts the man. And brothers and sisters, that is what Christ's love does. It confronts us. It doesn't just tell us what we, what we want to hear. Jesus, in his love for us, tells us what we need to hear. Dare I say, Jesus tells us what we must hear if we are to inherit eternal life and experience the joy and the peace that he's come to bring us. And that's what Jesus does with this man. He puts his finger on the most tender spot of this man's life and with these five commands to go, sell, give, come and follow, commands that necessitated that this rich young ruler walk away from his wealth and his prestige, his possessions and his power. Well, those five commands revealed the man's idolatry. It revealed the one thing that the rich young ruler lacked. See, he lacked obedience to the very first of the Ten Commandments. The very first of the Ten Commandments is this. You shall have no other gods before me. On another occasion, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And, and, and he responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What's revealed to us here in Mark chapter 10 is that the rich young ruler had not loved God in that way. And what we recognize is that the compass needle of a person's heart will always point in the direction in which his treasure dwells. It will always ultimately point to the God or the gods that that person worships. And for this man, his treasure was in his possessions and in his position. So Jesus tells him, turn all of it loose and let it go. Walk away from it. And come and follow me. He tells him, what you lack is a single-eyed devotion, a totally devoted heart that has placed God above everything else in your life. So what we've seen is what the rich, ruler, rich young ruler got right. We've seen what he got wrong. Now let's consider the third hook of the passage, and that is how he responded. How he responded. Notice that Mark says that he went away sorrowful, crestfallen. He was completely unhinged by what Jesus had commanded him to do. He had come to Jesus seeking what he must do to gain eternal life, and in his love for the man, Jesus told him, go sell, give, come and follow and having heard Jesus' demands, the man sorrowfully walked away. The price was too high. It's too great a cost. I refuse to pay it. Here's where the whole thing gets personal. You see, the force of this passage necessitates that we put ourselves in the rich young ruler's position. And so... Because that's the case, I want you to imagine that you are him. I want you to imagine that Jesus is looking at you. And I want you to imagine that in his love for you, Jesus puts his finger on your most tender spot. What's that going to be? 
for some, it, it might be your possessions. It might be your wealth. For others, it might be your status or your position in life. Uh, for others, it might be a person. Someone. It, it could be a relationship. Perhaps it's a secret sin that has its grips on you so tight that you can't imagine that not being in your life. Here's the question. When God puts his finger on that spot, will you be willing to relinquish whatever it is that Jesus is right now bringing to your attention so that you may truly follow him with all of your whole and undivided heart? Or like this man, will you turn and walk away from Jesus and will you walk away from eternal life? The call to decision could not be made any plainer. And neither could, it, could the stakes. Jesus tells a couple of parables in Matthew chapter 13. He gives a couple of distinct parables that demonstrate just how high the stakes are. Regarding the decision... Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now in both these parables, Jesus is pointing to the kingdom of heaven as being that hidden treasure as being that pearl of great value. In other words, the gospel, the center of which is, is none other than Jesus Christ himself, is something that's someone worth losing everything for. And according to the scriptures, eternal life only comes through a relationship with Jesus. And that relationship is a relationship through which we have placed all of our confidence and all of our hope and all of our trust in him and what he has done for us on the cross that we could have never done for ourselves in that he died in our place, was buried, and then was raised again on the third day. And therefore to keep our hands clutched around something else while refusing to grab on to Jesus is the epitome of what we studied last week when Jesus asked the question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? You see, in these two parables that Jesus tells us, both the man and the merchant recognize that the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price, they were both worth parting with everything else in life in order to gain those things. And I want you to notice the difference between the two men. The two men in these parables did so joyfully. In fact, the first parable says, with joy he sold everything he had that he might be able to go purchase that field. And while you say, well, joy is not in the second parable, you're right. But as one has said, we can't imagine a scenario in which someone sells everything they own and it does not make the adrenaline start flowing in their lives. And yet, compare that with the rich young ruler who when considering what Jesus had told him to do, walks away sorrowful. I heard a man this week say this, when you're presented with the gospel, it's going to do one of three things. It's going to make you sad. It's going to make you glad. It's going to make you mad. The gospel's not going to leave you the same. You're either going to be sad, 
You're going to be glad or it's going to make you mad. Here's what I want you to know. In light of that, do you believe that the reward found in Jesus is worth risking everything else in your life for in order to follow him? Is Jesus worth that to you? Those of you who have known me for many years and you've sat under my preaching for any length of time, you know that I'm not given to emotional appeals. I'm not given to manipulation. I believe my responsibility is to present the gospel just as God has delivered it in these scriptures and then allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in your heart. It's not my job to sit up here and manipulate you. But I'm also not one who intends to downplay the fact that I believe with all of my heart there are those here today for whom this question is of eternal importance. I believe that the Holy Spirit of God is placing his finger on areas of your lives that you have been unwilling to turn loose of. And he is forcing you to a point of decision and asking you very straightforward, will you follow me or will you turn and walk away? But before you make a decision, you need to know the gravity of the situation. The question before you is not a trivial matter. In fact, as we learned earlier, eternal life and eternal death hang in the balance. One way or the other, a choice must be made. Not to decide is a decision to not follow. It's a decision which rather than leading to eternal life, instead will ultimately lead to eternal death. So the question before you today is simply, will you accept the demands that Jesus places upon you to follow him? To become his disciple. The rich young ruler walked away sorrowful because he simply could not imagine turning loose of the possessions and the prestige that were his. And you may argue, well, I don't have those things. I'm not rich. I don't have, I don't have social standing. I don't have money. I don't have power. In your mind, those are not commodities with, commodities with which you trade. What I would say to you is that regardless of your opinions with regard to your financial status or your situation in life, there are areas in your life where you place your value and your self-worth. And Jesus tells you that you have to release your grips upon those things and be willing to sacrifice it all for the sake of following him. Let me ask you a question. What what would make you turn and walk away from Jesus? Whatever it is that comes to your mind, that is the God that you truly worship. And just like he did with this rich young ruler, Jesus is putting his finger on that spot and he's telling you that you must relinquish your hold upon it so that you may grasp onto him and have him for eternal life. The scriptures never revisit the life of this rich young ruler. We don't ever hear from him again specifically in any way. We are not told if he ever came back to the Lord. But if he did not, then the question that Jesus asked his disciples must still haunt him every day. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? If this man did not ever come back to Christ, I believe those words still haunt him even now. What I want you to know is that the price for your eternal life was so high that it demanded that Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, go to Calvary's cross and die in your place so that you might inherit eternal life. A life of abundant joy and peace. And in his love for you, he died for you. But in his love for you, he also puts his finger on that sensitive spot in your life and tells you that you have to forsake all of your idols. You must turn loose of whatever you value more than him. And as one has put it, according to God's word, if you want God to be your savior, you will have to replace what you are already looking to as your savior. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Following Jesus demands that we be willing to let go of anything that would dethrone him from his rightful position as Savior and Lord. Tim Keller has offered a very helpful and interesting take on this passage. He notes that in this passage, Jesus too is a rich young ruler. He's richer with a rule far greater than this man who approached him could ever imagine. Yet though he had ruled in heaven for all eternity, Jesus humbled himself and made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming to earth veiled in flesh in order that he could provide us with eternal life. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, Though Jesus Christ was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. Jesus went into a deeper poverty than any of us could ever imagine. And he did so in order that an eternal inheritance and a wealth greater than anything we could comprehend could be given to us. And as Keller writes, Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything to come after you and to rescue you and to love you. Now, if you understand that, and if you truly understand that, then it will change your attitude toward your wealth. It will change your attitude toward your position in life. It will change your attitude toward whatever thing that you are allowing to keep you from following Jesus. The question is, are you following Jesus? Will you follow Jesus? Will you turn loose of everything else and grab only him? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God.